pray. Jesus, we just invite you into this space today. This is a story that we either uh, see ourselves in or we see the possibility of finding ourselves in. And all of that has to do with our view of you, our belief in who you say that you are, our belief in what you tell us about sin, and our willingness to run to you, to run to your grace, and to reject that which you hate, that which only causes death. And so, Father, I just pray that you would use this familiar story to reveal the glory of who you are, to reveal the power of your great name to save, to reveal the beauty of your grace, and to draw us out out of willing darkness, to draw us out of the shadows that we hide in, and to draw us into the light where life and freedom are found. Thank you for the story of Jonah. And thank you for our time together today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. find ourselves in a very interesting part of the narrative today. Oh, the places our sin will lead us, if we let it. Sin is a powerful thing, and uh, it only promises one wage, and that's death. And that is what our sin offers us. That is what we're promised by sin. And yet we run to it. We protect it. We hide in it. We find safety and security and release in it. And yet if we truly understand who God is, if we truly understand what sin is, then we'll run from it. We'll fight it. We'll seek to put it to death. God in his sovereignty preserves this story of Jonah to show us a very clear picture of the end game of running to our sin and running from God. And we should take it serious. Because as we see, it can, it can bring about some very interesting circumstances. And yet we will see, as we look at this chapter and we understand it for what it really is, this is such a beautiful, historic account of God's grace, of His unfailing character, of His pursuit of us, regardless of what we are pursuing. And so again, we find ourselves in a very interesting spot where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1. And in verse 17 we read, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Talk about a cliffhanger, huh? (laughs) And that's where we find ourselves this week. But let's not forget how we got here, right? Because Jonah just wasn't walking along one day too close to the shore and got swallowed up by a great fish. There were some action steps that led Jonah down this road uh, in this particular tight spot. I guess I don't know how tight of a spot it is. I could be like Pinocchio, where there was like room to build a fire. I don't really know what this great fish looked like. We're not here to talk about that. Let's just remember how we got there, okay? Uh, so in chapter 1 and verse 2, God calls Jonah to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh uh, to call the people there to repent from their wicked ways. And Jonah does that with, with great jubilee, right? Verse 3, no, he doesn't. Uh, whether it's for fear of his life or hatred for his enemies, Jonah heads in the exact opposite direction to the city of Tarshish. And uh, he hops on a boat full of unsuspecting sailors and heads down into the hull for a nice little nap. And uh, in 4 through 6, God responds by sending a storm, uh, both to... Uh, get Jonah's attention and to make perfectly clear that Jonah's plan is not God's plan. And on 7 through 10, we see these pagan sailors recognizing that this storm has divine origins. And so they cast lots to figure out, okay, who's, whose fault is this? And the lot falls to sleepy Jonah. And uh, in verse 11 through 16, we see that these pagan sailors actually recognize God. That they, that they fear him and that they are doing whatever they can both to get out of the storm and to not further tick off this divine being, right? And so even, even at Jonah's suggestion, right, they go to the prophet, who are you? Well, I, I serve the God who's doing all of this. I'm a Hebrew and I serve the Lord who made the land and the sea. Okay, great. What should we do? And Jonah, that selfless prophet of God, so selfless, right? That's why we should all name our children Jonah. Because he looks at these sailors who are afraid of their lives and says, Hey guys, just throw me overboard and all this will end. And these sailors don't want to do this. They don't want the blood guilt on their hand. They don't want, they don't want further bad things to come upon them. This God is already upset and so they're rowing hard. They're trying to get out of this situation. And Jonah's just sitting there like, eh, Keep rowing. Doesn't matter. My God's not happy. Gotta throw me overboard. And so instead of choosing to repent, instead of choosing to call out to God who he knows he is offending, he knows he is running in the opposite direction of Jonah, this selfless prophet says, you know what? I choose death over obedience. Throw me overboard. And so... The sailors, still fearing God's judgment, listen to God's prophet, take his advice and throw him overboard. And then we find ourselves in the interesting predicament that he is now in in verse 17 because God isn't done with Jonah yet, is he? Before we dive into the content and the context of what we're looking at in chapter 2, I just want to address the fact that what we are discussing today is the historical account of a man being swallowed by a great fish and living in a belly for three days. That has been a very hard pill for some to swallow for centuries. 
Uh, it's been like right up there with uh, who built the ark, Noah, Noah, and the seven-day creation. And all of these things that we hold to because God's word is our authority. It is the thing upon which we stand, right? It is our, it is our greatest source of what is true. And we understand that our God can do whatever our God wants to do. And so make no mistake, what we are reading today, uh, we, we could, we could, people have, we could spend an entire sermon, we could take an entire series to find out how a man could survive in the belly of a fish and how big that fish would have to be and what the fish could have possibly ate to, to slow down the stomach acid, and how much uh, room there would have to be. Maybe, maybe this was a fish that would go up out of the depth every once in a while and take a breath so that, so that uh, Jonah doesn't suffocate. Uh, we, we, could, we could talk about all... Guys, we're talking about a miracle. We are talking about a miracle today. I don't care what fish you give me. I don't care how Pinocchio-rific this, this whale is. That cavern ain't big enough to give that man air for three days. This is a miracle. And so we have to accept that. And not only that, some will then go to say, well, then this is just allegory. This is just a story. And, and of course it's allegory, right? I mean, look how perfectly this points to Jesus. It has to be allegory, right? Because the sea, if you're, if you're an Old Testament Jew, the sea is death and chaos. And so Jonah is thrown into death and, and he gets swallowed up into this tomb-like state for three days. And then he gets out on land and it's like new life. It's like resurrection. Sorry, that sounded really gross in here. There was a lot of, a lot of throatiness in that, right? That was gross. Uh, but, but because it so perfectly aligns with Jesus, there's no way that this could be historical narrative. This is just one of those places where the Bible is like, like when we open up in Ezekiel and we are the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Anybody? Journey? No? Slate? Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, right? There are places in the Old Testament where it's like, that's a picture of something but I don't think it's giving us a literal reality. Guys, when we look at the text, if the text is our guide, then what we see here is a very real prophet who lived in a very real historical period of time. And this reads as though we get a snapshot into a very real point of this man's life. There is nothing about it that screams allegory. There is nothing about it that screams that this is anything other than a miraculous happening of God. And even if you are one of those people, I'm not talking about the liberal theologians out there who explain away every single instance of the Bible where the miraculous occurs. I'm not talking Jefferson Bible here. I am talking the people who believe that this is an allegory to point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Can I just point out the obvious problem? If this is too hard for us to swallow, that's not even in my notes. That's really humor, unintended humor. If this is too hard for us to swallow, can we just take a step back and say, oh, the story that this points to, though, is God who became man who lived a perfect life and allowed those who he created to nail him to a cross, place him in a tomb, and 
three days later, he rose from the dead. That's easier for you to swallow? I think if our God is big enough to raise a man who is fully God and fully man from the dead, we can believe that he can create some livable conditions inside the belly of a great fish for three days. But our faith is not in the miracle. Our faith is in a God who is able. And that is why we can stand here today and read this as historical narrative and not have a problem inside. And I know I'm preaching to the choir on this. I know I don't have a bunch of people out here who are saying, oh, well, please give me some more proofs for this. Our proof is in a God who is able. And so we can read this in absolute faith, not as half-brained, not as backcountry bumpkin who just, oh, yeah, I believe it. No, our faith is in a God who is able. And this whole story points to that reality. This whole story is about the fact that our God is able. And so we get this snapshot into a very real moment, a moment that Jesus affirms. Jesus affirms the historicity of this account. That's a fun word. First, the point that I was just going to blow right by. Sorry, guys. The point is the parallels between Jonah and Christ reveal God's sovereignty over history, not a reason to question history. And as we look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, Jesus says, some of the scribes and Pharisees, um, it reads, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus points to literal events in Jonah and how they symbolically point to the literal death and resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely, this is symbolic. A symbolic historical event of another historical event. And if Christ himself validated the historical account of Jonah, we should probably be okay with it as well. So let's move on. Uh, Let's take a look at chapter 2. We'll just work our way through it. Starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountain. I went down to the land. Remember that that I went down, that going down that Chris talked about last week. Jonah is saying right here, "I, I I am going down to death. I am circling the drain. I am going further and further to my end. And in the midst of that, in the midst of this death whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then it jumps back into the historical narrative portion where it says in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. In verse 1, we see the beginnings of a change of heart for Jonah, don't we? This is a little different than chapter 1 Jonah. Instead of continuing in the rebellion against God, instead of sitting in the belly of the great fish waiting for his death to come, Jonah finally stops running and calls out to God in his distress. And verse 1 states that God answered that cry of distress. Now you may be saying, well, of course he called out. Why wouldn't he call out in a situation like this? You get swallowed by a great fish who's going south. Why wouldn't you call out? My argument to that would be the type of person who doesn't call out is, is probably the person who is described very much in chapter 1. Right? Somebody who had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, who recognized what was happening and why it was happening, who had ample opportunity to reach out, to call out, to repent, and yet he chooses to willfully give up his own life instead of to willfully obey God's direction for his life. And guys, I think if we're often, uh, if we're if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we choose to do the exact same thing? How often, when we see sinful rebellion cropping up in our own hearts, how often, when we find ourselves turning to sin instead of turning to our Savior, how often, when we find ourselves in that place where we are feeding our flesh? and we recognize it, how often do we run to Him in that moment instead of continuing to choose to run from Him? And so again, I know it's real easy for us to just thwack Jonah on the head today and be like, stupid Jonah, what are you doing? What are we doing? What are we doing when we're playing around with sin in our lives? When we are hiding it instead of fighting it? when we are clinging to it instead of running from it, what games are we playing? Here we get this beautiful snapshot of Jonah's endgame, of where his sin, how far that death brings him. What are we doing when we can read this and know the end of this and we're still running to that? Jonah shows us that regardless or when or wh- regardless of when or why we cry out in distress, God hears us. Isn't that a beautiful reality? Jonah's prayer goes on to reveal that he recognizes the role God is playing in his present circumstances. And oh, if we recognized this same thing as well in our own lives instead of bucking up against what is happening time and time again. Look in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, 
for you, Jonah, speaking of God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah gets it. He doesn't get much, right? We're not going to applaud Jonah very often, but he, he gets it here. He's showing that he gets it here. Jonah doesn't see himself as a, a victim of random circumstances that were beyond his control. He isn't calling out for God to judge the evil sailors who casted him into the sea and, and were the result of him being in this belly. He isn't cursing the great fish that is currently holding him prisoner. And while, let's be honest, we do not see him directly acknowledging his own sinful stupidity, his crying out means he knows full well why he's here. And he knows who put him here. And while we may expect someone like Jonah, based on what we have seen so far, to react in anger, right? To, to take his final moment of rebellion and shake his fist at the sky and with the very last breath in his lungs say, Cursed be your name, O Lord my God, for you put me here. Thanks a lot. End scene. But we don't see that, do we? We don't see that. We see Jonah actually doing something smart. We can applaud that. We actually see Jonah not in a place of despair any longer, but as we read on, we actually find Jonah in a place of hopefulness, if you can believe that. Jonah recognized something. He recognized that it is always better to experience God's discipline than to face God's judgment. And what Jonah just acknowledged in these last few verses, as he says, your waves, your billows, your hand, all of this, he's acknowledging, God, this is you. You are doing this. But I'm still here. I'm still here. And that means I'm being disciplined. Not being judged. Read on in verse 4. <clears throat> then he said, I am driven away from your sight. And yet that verse goes on to read, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I love that visual for how deep he was. Uh, not only in, in this great sea, but where his sin had actually brought him to, to the base of the mountains in the heart of the earth. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you, this is one of those but God moments, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Guys, this is not God's judgment. A lot of times we can read this and we think, oh yeah, Jonah, he was being judged for his sin. Guys, this, this is loving discipline of a gracious father. Because judgment would have been murdered at sea by some salty sailors, right? Let's be, oh, oh, this is you, you're, oh, this is, this is simple. The lot fell to sleepy Jonah. Let's just kill him. End of scene. 
Judgment would have been death by drowning, right? Or, or maybe swallowed by a great white. A little different. That would have been judgment. Judgment equals being eternally removed from God's sight to a forever land whose bars closed upon him for all of eternity. That would be God's judgment. Discipline. Loving, gracious discipline from a God who desires repentance and right relationship for a God that desires to pull up from the pit versus leave one in the pit. That's three days in the belly of a fish. With an opportunity to recognize where you are, what went wrong. With breath in your lungs to still cry out to the one who can make it right. That's gracious discipline. And even if he never has the chance to undo what his sin has caused, he still has breath in his lungs to make things right with his God. A God who hears him from the lowest region of the pit that his sin has brought him to. How gracious. How loving. How, how able and willing is our God to save it's funny to look at circumstances like this and be like, wow, God is so gracious. But guys, what's the alternative? The alternative is giving Jonah exactly what he wanted and was too stupid to recognize what it would cost. Maybe Jonah had Solomon's word in mind as he was, as he was finding hope in the belly of this great fish we see in Proverbs three eleven through 12 it says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves those whom he loves as a father, the son whom he delights. And at the very least, based on the imagery that we see here, uh, we, we, we can tell that Jonah knew his Solomon. And uh, we can assume that he was pulling from 1 Kings 8, 37 through 40 and the promises that he would have found there as Solomon dedicates the temple and he says this of, uh, of the people of God. He says, if there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in a land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness is there, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. <clears throat> I don't know what promise he was holding on to. I don't know what gave him hope to call out to believe that God would hear, that God would be not only able, but mighty to save and give grace. But Jonah calls out. Because he recognizes that if he still has air in his lungs, there's still a chance. There's still an opportunity to cry out. 
God's discipline for our sin reveals his desire to free us from the pit. God's discipline for our sin reveals his desire to free us from the pit. It would be easy for Jonah to feel that discipline and to further run, to further rebel. Similar in the same way as when I have to discipline my children, sometimes they look up at me with further defiance. Like, how could you punish me for what I just did? Get him again. No. Um, Sometimes they just don't get it, right? But that discipline is love. Hebrews 12 points us to that over and over and over again. As many times as we want to come to it, it's that God would not be loving if he didn't discipline us. He would be a negligent father. And Jonah realizes, wait, I'm here because of what I did. And if I'm still here, it means there is still a chance to reach out and grab hold of my father's love. And so Jonah, understanding why he is where he is and what God is doing in the midst of it, repents. And we see this in verse 8 and 9 where he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We see Jonah here continuing to draw on that temple language that we saw from uh, the covenant promises found in 1 Kings 8. And he declares his change in direction. Right? That's when we, when we talk about what repentance is, right? It's I'm going one way, I'm walking towards my sin, and now completely different direction. And that's what we see taking place here uh, in Jonah. And we don't know if his general statement about those who worship idol in vain uh, was his own admittance, or if it was just a general statement. We really don't know. Um, Maybe he was acknowledging that he himself forsook his own hope of God's steadfast love by sacrificing to vain idols. Maybe it was the idol of of pride as he, a, a Hebrew, a prophet of the one true God, a chosen member of God's family, refused to declare God's saving truth to a pagan nation. Maybe he was sacrificing to the vain idol of safety and security. We don't know anything about that, do we? As Jonah, fearing for his own life, at the hands of this great city filled with their great enemy, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm going to run in the opposite direction of that because that's going to cost me my life. That's going to cost me something. Again, we don't know. We don't know. But either way, whether it was a general expression or a closet self-admission, Jonah rightly understands the hopelessness of pursuing the path of sin. That much we know. Whether he is acknowledging those who do or the fact that he himself did it, he is acknowledging that is not the way to go that to do so would be to forsake hope and the steadfast love of the one who made us, who made him, who made you. And so Jonah, 
declares that he will take a different path, one of sacrifice and devotion to the one true God, which I think we can all agree is certainly a different path than the one that he was on. Right? Here we see that rightly understanding God and our sin leads us further from sin and closer to Him. When we rightly understand who our God is, when we rightly understand what He is doing, when we rightly understand His discipline and why He would care enough to give it, when we rightly understand what our sin is, what the wage of that sin is, what that thing that we are holding on to that promises one thing but will only always deliver death. When we rightly understand that, we run to Him. And we run from our sin because that is the only rational response. That is the only thing that makes sense in light of who God is and and what our sin is. And we see Jonah choosing that path, one of repentance that leads to our messy conclusion in verse 10. So let's go ahead and read that together. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This verse marks our transition out of the prayer life of Jonah and back into the narrative. It is a gross verse. But uh, hopefully you can see that it is one that is drenched in more than fish vomit. Hopefully you recognize that this is a verse that is drenched in God's grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and desire to forgive. This is a messy verse, but it is a beautiful verse. Jonah was in the pit. He was in the deepest regions of what his sin could possibly take him to. And he called out to God in the midst of that. And God was mighty to save. Nothing about Jonah's initial life that we read about in chapter 1. We can, we, we can all agree on this, right? Nothing about the prophet of Jonah. I know that's hard for us to say because like the prophet of Jonah, it's like, oh, he was a prophet. There had to be something good there, right? Find me something good about this guy in chapter one. Maybe that he acknowledges that God was the one who made the land and the sea. If we're searching, what about this guy was, was worthy of this response from the one he was running from? from the one he was rebelling against. Nothing. And as we go on to read chapters 3 and chapters 4, it's going to get harder for us to find things about Jonah that we like. It just is. He's really whiny. (laughs) He is just the worst. And we can sit here and we can read it and we can search for something. Frankly, if, if you want to go ahead and you want to become a biblical scholar, you can do what biblical scholars have been doing for ages. And you can write your own commentary on, on Jonah chapter 2. And you know what? If you go and you read scholars through the ages, you know what you're going to find? I can tell you. I can save you the time. You're going to find about a 50-50 split. 
You're going to find people that will look behind what Jonah is saying and say, see, that is a truly repentant man. That is a guy who, who understood it all and, and man, he had this huge heart change and, and he was this guy that just had a complete and total transformation. And then you're going to hear people that say, yeah, I'm not buying it. Jonah was just, that was such a Jonah prayer. Never acknowledged his sinfulness. Never acknowledged that he was the reason he was in the pit. Never acknowledged, yeah, there's some, there's some backdoor admission here. But does this guy ever really truly say that he's sorry? Does this guy ever, does he even feel a, a drop of sorrow for his sin? Or is he just simply banking on God's character, banking on who he is, banking on what he knows and saying, hey, that's right. If, if, I, if I turn, if I turn towards the temple, if I lift my hands, if I call out to you from my pit, you hear me and you're mighty to save. Help! There's still time! You're going to get a 50-50 split. And you know what? At the end of the day, Jonah, just like the nation he represents and what they so often did, just like we ourselves so often do, he cries out in the midst of a really unsavory set of circumstances. That much we know. He calls out in the midst of what his sin has caused and says, God, I need you. And whether it was because he recognized his sin or he recognized his only chance of salvation, we don't really know. But one thing we do know is that he commits. He commits to change the path that he was on, one of actively running away from God and active rebellion, and now to actively obey the call that God has placed on his life. Even if the way he did it was half-hearted at best. And yet, the truth is that we can't see Jonah's heart. And that's okay. Because again, as we're going to see again and again and again, I get it, the book is entitled Jonah. And so you would think, oh, this is all about Jonah. And so we need him. We need him to either rise to be the hero that we need him to be, or he needs to come as some sort of villain because he's the main character. No, he's not. That is not the point of this narrative. In fact, if you're going to focus in on Jonah, you're going to get to the end of chapter 4, and you're just going to be incredibly uncomfortable. And you're going to feel like, why did, why did, it, why did they do that to us? It was like... The end of like the second Marvel movie and there's 17,000 more to come. And now I just feel like, what happens, you know, or whatever cliffhanger we have in life. Guys, it's, it's not about Jonah. Instead, this book is pointing us to a gracious God who is mighty to save and willing and able to save all who call on them. All who calls on him can and will be saved. And that's the point. Whether you are a, a, a pagan bunch of sailors, whether you are a, a, a city that is 1,000% turned against God, 
He is able to save an entire city. Or if you are a hard-hearted or a half-hearted prophet in the belly of a great fish, in the depths of the what your sin is called at the root of the mountains, if you cry out, our God is mighty and able and willing to give grace, to save. And yes, this story points to Jesus. This story points to the One who willingly threw Himself into death. Who willingly entered the tomb for three days. And who by the power of the One who is able to save, rose again from the grave to promise victory over death, victory over sin, now and forever. That's who our God is. That's who our Savior is. And whether it is the first time that you are calling out to Him, the first time that you realize that you need Him, either because you realize the depth of your sin or you are just standing in the wreckage of what your sin has caused and you want out, either way the point is, call to Him. While there's still time, call to Him. Because we are in an age where the brokenness that our sin is causing can actually lead us to the One who can save us from it now and forever. And yet, the God today who is doling out discipline, who is allowing our sin to turn us to Him, one day will stand up before us as our judge and will turn us away from Him if we die in the penalty that our sin deserves without covering of the shed blood of Jesus. We are called today to call out to Him while there still is today and to ask Him to save. Ask Him to cleanse. Ask Him to redeem. Ask Him to pull us out of the pit. And He will. He promises that He will. Guys, we can't play around with sin anymore. And for those of you who are here and you've heard the Gospel for the thousandth time and yet you're still sitting here like, yeah, but what does this matter? This matters! Now and forever. Don't wait until the discipline of God drags you into the depth of what your sin rewards you. Don't wait for that. Don't wait for the boat. Don't wait for the storm. Don't wait for the sea. Don't wait for the belly. Don't wait because you are not guaranteed it. This is a wonderful snapshot into the historical account of one man's life. But the reality is that our sin, when we walk in it, we're playing with fire. And none of us knows None of us knows how long our God will tarry with us or with this world that is drenched in the death that our sin is causing. None of us knows how long. And so while you still have breath in your lungs, cry out. Cry out to Him. 
And there's no guarantee. I get it. You might be sitting here thinking, okay, if I, if I really came clean with my sin, if I really stepped out into the light, the brokenness, the devastation, what would ensue if I was really honest with what's going on in my heart? You don't even know the ramifications. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to know. I know what sin reaps in our lives. And I know the one who is willing to save us from it. And even if, even if your life is harder than it was when you were in hiding, are you willing to trust the one who knows what is best for you? To step out into his purifying light. To allow the refiner's fire to purify your life whether it is for the first time or for the thousandth time that you have called out to him. Guys, sin is not something we should be playing around with. And if you are still lost in your sin, cry out to Jesus and grab hold of the grace that he offers you. Trust him as your new life, your new death, your new promise of resurrection. Place your faith in the one who is mighty and willing to save while you still can. And brothers and sisters, those who have looked to the cross of Jesus, those of you who have cried out, those of you who know that God is mighty to save, but you are still steeped in sin that you are hiding, that you are clinging to, that you are running to instead of Him. Guys, Don't mess around. I don't know who told you that when you sign a card, you're good to go. I don't know who told you when you were 12 that when you throw a stick in the fire, that's it, that seals the deal. That's just not in the New Testament. And if we are going to run from God and run to sin, if we are going to actively rebel and hold on to death, and say, no, I don't want you. I want this. Guys, there's a very big difference between running towards Jesus and tripping along the way and running in the opposite direction of Jesus and holding on to our sin. For one, there is grace upon grace upon grace. And for the other, there's a warning. There's warning after warning after warning in the New Testament. And so if you are here today, and you are holding on to sin that you are hiding, that you will not take before Him, that you will not entrust to Him. If you are coming to church as one who says, yeah, I'm, I'm running after Jesus, but you know in your heart you are running the opposite way of where He is and what He wants from you, then today is the day to cry out. Today is the day to step out into the light. Today is the day to allow Him to save you from what is only looking to destroy you. And so again, whether it's the first time, whether it's the hundredth time, let's cry out to Jesus today. King David writes, actually, a point that I totally forgot. I'm sorry. Some of you will yell at me for this, and so I'll put it there. God's grace is a reflection of who He is, not a response to how deserving we are. And that's the beauty, right? We know Jonah did not deserve this. We know, if we're honest, none of us deserve His grace. And yet He tells us to come often. (laughs) 
as often as we need to cry out in confession, to walk in the light where there is fellowship. Right? That's, that's the promise we find in 1 John. And no, will we be perfect? Guys, we know none of us will be perfect. Right? He was clear. He didn't, he didn't come for the perfect. He came for the sick, right? He's a doctor, not a country club director. And so we can come in our mess knowing that there is grace upon grace upon grace. But let's continue to fight and not run back into darkness, not reject His grace and cling to the death that we came from, that we were called out of. Let's never do that. And so let's run after him together and find the one who David says in Psalm 145.8 is, um, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is God gracious? Yes. Is he willing and able to save? Absolutely. Is God able to pull you out of the pit, whatever pit you find yourself in, whether this is the first time you are recognizing what your sin has brought you to, or whether you are finally willing to deal with the sin that you have been hiding and clinging to, a thousand times yes. The question is, how will you respond to the grace that has been made available to you in Christ for your every sin? Will you run towards Him or continue to run away from Him? Will you cry out to Him or will you continue to hide from Him? Let's use our breath to bring us closer to Him. Let's pray. Father, we need You. Jesus, we've always needed You. And the beauty of Your grace is that You continue to pour it out upon our sin. Lord, that there is nothing that we could ever hide from you or hold back from you that you are not able to cover with your blood. And as we, as we remember, as we reflect, as we do throughout our lives, we are called to reflect upon the death that you died and what it means, what your blood actually does and its, its power and its ability to break the power of sin and death and to give us life here and now and in the next. God, that is, that is what your death does. That's what your blood is able to do. Lord, may we, may, may we be a people that sees you as you are, as the gracious, loving, merciful, kind God who is mighty to save. And may we run to you and not run from you. Lord, where there is grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.